Podcast of the Cinema. I'm Alonzo Duraldi. You're Dave White. We're film critics. This is our show. Yeah. Maybe it's 2024. Maybe now. you're a first time listener, and your your New Year's resolution was listen to more podcasts. Yes. Yeah. And that's how you've and stumbled then, our and way. You, when you're done listening to this show, you'll be like, maybe I won't. <laughs> maybe that was a dumb resolution. Maybe. Maybe I don't need that as much as I thought I did. <laughs> but also, maybe you do. True. Yes. Anyway. Maybe, maybe, maybe you needed to hear two queers go all the way on the film All of Us Strangers. Mm, maybe you did. Which we're going to do. Um, I had this idea. Is this a do the it's spoilers two, at the, the very end after yeah, the letters? Yeah, we do a spoiler at the end. I think that's like, a good idea. Uh, because... It is a film that needs to be uh, seen without people telling you the things the things that are revealed over the course. I mean, there are some things that are, and the and the and the you know the quality of that of those revealed you know narrative plot points. Um, you know, it varies from person to person, as we have learned Indeed. over the past few weeks. Uh, what. Interpretation. I have never seen, not never is the wrong word. It's been a while since I've seen a film as divisive as this one. Yeah, in, for for the for the for the for the for the queer male audience. I say among its presumed target audience. Yeah, yeah, among the target audience, like with bros, like which I will talk about as well. Uh, in the context of all of us strangers, because I think they have some things in common. They do. With bros, you had some people who were like, I'm not seeing that. <laughs> and and there, there weren't a lot of... I, I found that if people saw it, they were like, yeah, that was pretty funny. Or they loved it. Maybe they, maybe they saw it and they, they hated it. But uh, this one's making people angry. Or besotted, you know. I yeah. know. I know people have seen it like four or five times, and they still yeah, yeah. Cry that's every what time. I mean. It's all over the map. It's it's all over the map. It's making people angry. It's making people want to go back and see it again and again. Yeah. Um. So I'm I'm really I really am excited to be talking about it on this show. But we're gonna save it for the end, and then we're gonna. Uh, then we'll do letters, and then we'll be like, all right, beat it if you don't right. want to hear spoilers. Right. 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 But we're gonna begin. With the holdovers, because that was the one that was re- released the earliest mm. of the batch of five that we've got for you today. Um, it is now streaming on Peacock, but it's also be- still in theaters. That's the only, that's the way I saw it. Yes, <laughs> although I did uh, I did go back to a movie theater yesterday for the first time yes. since before my hip surgery, and uh, we'll be getting to that too. I I saw Night Swim. And I said I was a, I was a success. I successfully uh, sat down in a chair 
at the AMC uh, Grove multiplex. And it was a little difficult, but I but I did it and I got back out and I felt really cool. When was the last time you went to the movies? Like October? October. Wow. Yeah, because when November rolled around, that was three weeks out. Right. The surgery was November 20th and they warned me, don't get sick with anything in the next three weeks or we will postpone you. Yeah. And I was like, oh no, no, I've waited too long for this. You're not postponing me. And... So I, I, I locked down to myself for yeah. the entire month of November. I didn't go anywhere, and I didn't let anybody come over. <laughs> and if I went to a screening, I wore a mask. You were masking, yes, uh, because I was determined. Yes. I couldn't even they – said, they said, forget about COVID. We don't want you getting a cold. Yeah. You will not be sick with anything, or we will postpone you. They were very – Adamant. Adamant about it. So – I didn't go to the movies in November, and then after the surgery, I was <laughs> unable uh, for many weeks. And then, right. uh, but I've been practicing all the chairs mm-hmm. in the house. I got o- I got on the couch for the first time the other day. That's a toughie. Like the couch is something I still might need a little practice with. Uh, but I got in and out of that that AMC uh, thing. And do you know what? You know what trailer I didn't see? The Bob Marley movie? The Bob Marley movie. Wow. The, I was I was becoming so... Came uh, Milagro. Yeah, like I've got the Nicole Kidman piece memorized. Sure. Uh, I Every moment of it. Like, sure, we all do. And I, I could loop her. <laughs> That's how good I am at the timing of how she speaks and what to she care. says. I've become that person almost with the Bob Marley trailer. Hey, yeah. Like, I, every beat, I'm like... I know the dialogue yeah, already. I will be, I'm off book. I will be delighted when trailer. the Bob Marley movie opens and when Argyle opens. So yeah. that I never have to see oh, they showed us Argyle. Again. Of course. They showed us Argyle with the cartoon cat. Yes. Do they? Okay. So the, 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 trailer, the trailer for Argyle is the cat is stuffed in a bag. Yes. The cat is flying through the air. And I'm like, is there an actual cat in this movie at all? <laughs> Or is it Paddington? Is it entirely a digital cat? Um, I'm curious about this. As 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 I'm equally curious about the film Argyle. <laughs> yeah, not uh, not particularly in either of those things. I, I tried to say that with a straight face. I will be going. Sure. To just see to find Argyle. out about the cat. Well, I'm just so excited now to be going places and mm. doing things again after like six weeks so of just to be hanging the, out. The films of January and February. Care. I do not care. <laughs> I don't care what they are. I'll go. All right. I have been given a, a, a command from my doctor to leave the house and go yeah. out into the world and do things. Are you going to see Mean Girls with me this week? No. No. Because uh, I want to wait. I'm still of a in a place where... I have all my energy in the morning, ah, and so by by dinner time, I'm like I'm not going anywhere. Gotcha. And so the I know the Mean Girls press screening Tuesday is at like seven. Yeah. So I'm no. Are you going to go with me to the morning screening tomorrow? No, because that screening room is not my gotcha. friend yet. That, okay. That, those seats are weird and treacherous. They are at that particular screening room, and I know I can't do those yet. They're very. Soft. They're soft and they sink you down and they rock a little bit. I'm like, yeah. no, 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 no. This is unstable. As 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 is my entire body right now. 
So fair enough. The uh, bit by bit, though, every day a little bit better. Every day I get a little stronger in that operated leg, and you know I'm 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 a, I'm I'm valiant and and uh, uh, brave. And you're my brave little soldier. What's the other word? That's courageous. I'm courageous. <laughs> Uh, I've got leg gumption, <laughs> so I'm doing things. I'll probably go see Mean Girls on a Saturday morning, like next week or whatever. Okay. Um, maybe I'll go while you're at the Lafka dinner. No, yeah, who knows? A, that's what, an evening. Who knows what? Oh, that's right. Yeah, I won't be doing that. No, <laughs> I just also this time of year going to an early matinee of anything anywhere is like. Whoosh, Oh, yeah. There were three other people in the big house at Night Swim yesterday. Right. Uh, Because apparently ain't nobody going to see that movie. It's doing okay. Is it doing okay? It's it's just not not at 11.30 on Saturday morning. morning, No. But apparently not not great. Yeah. And and, and the, you know, whatever tracking things they do where they (laughs) ask people about it, no one's liking it that much. So (laughs) I've given it a cinema score of N. Or no. <laughs> I didn't hate it, though. We'll get to that, too. We'll get to um, But I, I want to start with the holdovers because it. I was stoked to see it. Yeah. When it came out, I thought, oh, I can't. I can't go. Because my doctors are telling me, don't do that. So I didn't do it. And then I waited and waited and waited and waited for the streaming to hit. And now it's streaming on Peacock, you say? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's where I watched it uh, a few days ago. It is about, it is the new film from Alexander Payne. Yes. Is there something else you needed to say before we dive into? No, no, I was the, no, no. No? You, are you sure? I was just going to mention that before seeing Mean Girls, the musical, I want to watch Heather's, the musical. Oh, that's right. they did for Roku which Channel you have a year seen. or two ago. You saw that on a stage. You saw it on stage, yeah. So The Holdovers is the new film from Alexander Payne. Uh Directed by Alexander. Yeah, he Payne, did not write it. Written by uh, David Hemmingson. It stars Paul Giamatti, Davine Joy Randolph, and Dominic Sessa. Now, Dominic Sessa is sort of new, right? Yeah, he apparently was literally discovered at one of the prep schools where they shot the film. Oh, he he was at Deerfield Academy. Yeah, yeah, in Deerfield, Massachusetts. So, a true preppy mm. is playing the preppy young man in this film at a prep school. It is a New England boarding school, I guess it's in Massachusetts somewhere. Yeah. And it's 1970, and it's the Christmas break, and there are people who cannot go home. There are students who are stuck there for various reasons. One student is Korean, and his parents are like, no, it's too far for you to (laughs) fly home. Uh, just stay put. There's a Mormon kid whose parents are out on a mission. On a mission. There's a kid whose parents are punishing him because it's 1970 and he won't cut his hair. So they're like, well, you can't come home for Christmas then. <laughs> and he's convinced that because uh, they want to go skiing, that they will break and they will take him skiing yeah. uh, with them. And then there's another kid. What's the other kid's deal? Uh, the parents are like renovating the house or something. They're renovating a house. 
and then, then there's, there's the main kid. And then there's the main kid, Dominic Sessa, whose parents... Whose, whose mom and her new husband want some alone time. They want to go on a honeymoon. Because the, the they Caribbean. just got married a few months earlier, and they want to yeah. go on a vacation without him. Yeah. They're like, just stay at school. Which is... That's so cold rich people stuff yeah especially yeah. when like they don't tell them to the last possible minute oh by the way you're not by joining way, us yeah. in saint kitts <laughs> you are staying at your miserable boarding school that is that is some i mean honestly if you're a super rich person and you send your kids to a boarding school you don't actually like care <laughs> about being a parent very much right is well, that am i wrong about this i, I just Has, is anybody listening who has been to boarding school and and your parents actually, you know. I, I just finished reading Capote's Women in yes. anticipation of the feud season that's starting yes. at the end of the month. Yeah. And they talk about how it was very common for these sort of like rich, you know, society folks taking a, a page from the British. Yeah. That like, you know, the kids were raised by the nannies and as soon as they were old enough were sent off to school. So we're talking about just a custom. Here, yeah. Right. We're not talking about. Parents not actually loving their children. No, we're talking is, about parents. What was, what, what was done? What one does when one is of that set? Exactly. Okay. So, like the Downton Abbey kids, you never see the Downton Abbey kids because the nanny's always got them. Exactly. Is that kind of what we're talking about here? Yeah. All right. Uh, well, I didn't realize how much of that was in the United States. I mean, I have read the official Preppy Handbook. <laughs> it came out in 1980, and I was fascinated by it because. I was a kid in a trailer park, so I didn't understand anything about these Richies. Um, but I wanted to know. I always wanted to know things. Yeah. And and what I learned from that book, I've seen in the culture now for the past 43 years, that it it wasn't just a tongue-in-cheek, you know, satire of, oh, no. of rich kid life. It was... Rich kid life written from the inside, and it was meant to be amusing, but it was also truly real. Yeah. So, but I've never quite understood the concept of the boarding school in the U.S. as a yeah, you just go there and you stay there. Particularly the same sex boarding school, where like you have no contact except occasionally with maybe a sister school. I worked for a time in college at a movie theater where one of my one of my coworkers. Uh, she had been uh, a student at Ursuline, mm. and uh, in a, 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 an all-girls day school in Dallas, and they would have regular sort of dances with whatever was it Jesuit was the boys. I think so, yeah. Catholic day school in Dallas, um, but then there was like Saint Mark's in Dallas, and they knew people from Saint. She knew people from Saint Mark's as well. I went to a party at her house one time, and all these like Saint Mark's kids were there, <laughs> and I was like, I have zero in common with you. <laughs> we don't live in the same universe. That's like where Wes Anderson went, at all. Right? Wes Anderson, I think, went to Saint Mark's. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So anyway, blah blah blah. This movie <laughs> is. About what happens over that that Christmas break. Yeah. You've got a professor, a professor, he's not a professor, he's a teacher at the boarding school, Paul Giamatti. Everybody hates him. Students and faculty. In fact, alike. students and faculty, he's mean. Yeah. Uh, he is haughty and superior, and he hates his students as much as they hate him. Yes. Then there is the uh, cook of the school, uh, Dave and Joy Randolph, 
she has he has volunteered. No, he has been. He's, he's, he's been pressed into service. He's been pressed into service. The guy whose turn punishment. it was came. No, the, well, it's a combo. Yeah. The guy whose turn it was came up with a a, a, a nonsense excuse, excuse yeah. to get out of it. And Giamatti's character is being punished because he failed the son That's of a correct. senator and major donor. Yeah. Uh, Dave and Joy Randolph's character, the, the the head cook of the school, uh, she's there because she's grieving the loss yes. of her son who had been a student at the school. Right. Uh, she took the job at the school. To get him an education. To get him, a, I guess it was, it was, it was a free because of? Yeah. The, okay. Because she was the employee there. Um, the, uh, and he graduated and he went to school, he went to Vietnam and he's been killed in action yes. in Vietnam. He was 19. And so she's grieving this. She doesn't want to go home and see the family. Uh, her, the rest her of her sister family has all. invited her, but she doesn't think it's appropriate. She she doesn't want to do anything to do with anybody. She wants to stay. So uh, so they stay, and fairly quickly, the skiing kids' parents break down. They take him skiing, and he says to the rest of them, "Who wants to go skiing?" So they all go skiing, except for the character played by Dominic Sessa, because his parents, his parents cannot be reached. Be reached. To give on their vacation to give him the permission, so he's still stuck there. You've got three major characters, plus a custodian, yes, uh, who is played by. Let me get his names because he's the other main. There's all. There's also a, the, a, a woman who's a secretary at the school, uh, who lives in town and like you know when she's not at school works as a waitress in a local uh, bar. She's played by Carrie Preston. Played by Carrie Preston, who's on. Uh, True Blood, uh, and The Good Fight, I think. And also, uh, uh, so Naheem Garcia is Danny, the other uh, employee who's there. He's the, he's the custodian. He's the janitor. So um, this becomes a film about uh, people who hate each other trying to learn how to <laughs> not hate each other. Yeah. At Christmas. At Christmas, yeah. Uh, it has some of the coziest production design in a very long time that I've seen. It's got, it's a, it's a bitterly cold, snowy New England winter and they've shut off the heat in, mm-hmm. in most of the, the school, including the dormitory. So everyone is sleeping, sleeping in the infirmary, in the, infirmary <laughs> in the same place, except the cook has her own little uh, apartment Yeah, and the heat is not shut off in right. her place. So they gather in her Living room some nights just to watch television and hang out. Uh, but bit by bit, they all come to know each other a little better and understand each other a little better. Uh, and it is so full of cliches <laughs> in terms of, you know, are we, are, we, are we warming up to each other? Are we thawing out? Are we understanding each other's troublesome lives? Yeah. And the answer is yes. <laughs> if you hate that kind of thing, where people are so learning to have feelings, you will hate this film. But it's it's got a lot of, I think, bite. It does have a lot of bite. Uh, it has, I think, earned emotional responses mm-hmm. because the cast, the three leads are all so great with each other. And, like, Paul Giamatti, 
could be this guy in his sleep. <laughs> That's a fact. Like, he's been this kind of character before. Right. Um, not specifically. But if you were thinking, who can I cast to be this guy? <laughs> you would kind of think, oh, yeah, Paul Giamatti. Or the late Philip Seymour Hoffman, perhaps. But there's something angrier about Paul Giamatti. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and so he's right here. Um, Davon Joy Randolph, her character is is the axis of this. Like mm-hmm. the, the other two sort of mediate kind of through her quite often, I think. Um, and you learn, you learn a little something about everybody along the way. And it's not, it's not exactly what you think it's going to be. Yeah. I, I think what's, what's great is that the, the reveals as the, as we get to know the characters, so much of it have to do with issues of race and class and yes. how these characters have been treated by the world. Yeah. And then also like how this kid, as somebody who is ostensibly immune from those things, has his own stuff to, stuff deal, to deal with. Right. Um, and and I, that becomes a major reveal later in the yes. film. Yeah. And I think the fact that, that it's set at Christmas kind of puts it in that mold of films about people discovering their best selves around the holidays right but it does so in a way that isn't sentimental or unctuous in any way yeah like it's still it it is it is very recognizably human and complicated in that way yeah but they're allowed to to reach those epiphanies all the same if i have a complaint mm-hmm it is that it uses the subject of race in ways that are meant to do for this film what the help did for its white people. Not as, not as egregiously mm-hmm. as the help. The help, I think, is a blatantly sort of, you know, I wouldn't have been racist sure. in 1962. Mm-hmm. Well, you would have if you were white. You just would have. Because you would have you would have been part of a system that exists in the United States, and in 1970 it wasn't a whole lot better. Now you could say that we're at this sort of liberal, educated place, you know this this. But I, I can't imagine the the progressive qualities that I'm seeing on screen here would be as accurate as as the film would suggest i disagree with you a little in that i think that a lot of what this movie is saying about race is tied directly into systemic racism and not just that is true white people who are mean or nice right but you've still got that Uh, it's 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 it is like i said it's i'm not comparing it to the help sure in in a major way i'm just saying that it gives you more, it does gives you more, you know, uh, nods to the idea of systemic racism. Yes. But it still gives its white characters, you know, sort of only good. Yeah. There's one blatantly racist student. Right. And he is blatantly racist to the Korean kid. Right. And then Dominic Sessa's character is blatantly kind <laughs> to the Korean kid. And I think as an as a if you were a white audience member, you're thinking I would be nice to the Korean uh, kid, and 
And well, maybe you would have, maybe you wouldn't have. Um, it's, I just, movies that need you to love the characters <laughs> will never, period films, sure, that need you to love the characters will never, I think, I think, ever be completely fully honest about life the way it was. I think they wouldn't. I, but I think I think you're implying that like <laughs> everyone was horribly racist. No, no, no. I'm not saying time. everyone was horribly racist. I'm saying that that the world was sure, and there was kind of no escaping that. There is no doubt in my mind that if I had been born ten years earlier. Mm-hmm. I would have much more, uh, uh, I would have been far less likely to see in the media progressive attitudes about race, right? But because I was a child in the 70s, you and I have talked about this so many times, because I was a child in the 70s, I was seeing the the idea being floated into the world of of sitcoms and films and whatever that that the world was multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-racial, and everyone was happy and right. good. And whatever those things happened in the past were, they were done. Yeah. And when you're seven or eight, you think, okay, I guess that's true. Thanks, Kid Power. But if I... <laughs> if y'all remember what Kid Power was, you're old like we are. Uh, anyway, my parents, my white parents said racist stuff all the time. Mm. They also had friends of other races. Yeah. Which you didn't think about when you were seven years old watching it. You're like, you say crazy stuff to your black friend who's here right now shooting pool with you. But you know you're not you're not thinking these things when you're seven. You're just thinking, well, I guess that's what people say and do. Like, <laughs> it is. It is a it is it is it is an aspect of white America that period films just can't ever really get a hold on. Well, when they're made by white people, anyway. Right. Yes. Well, exactly. That's what you I know. Mean. And I I think this movie doesn't butt up against that as often because these characters spend so much of a time in a, an isolated bubble. I understand that too. So I, that's just my that's my thing about. I it. hear you. I, I otherwise I I think this is you know, this good. movie really leans into the 1970 in it terms very of very does. I mean, not yeah. just sort of nailing the production design and the detail, but like the actual filmmaking. They created a fake. Focus Features logo yeah. as it would have looked in 1970. Yeah. Yeah. The opening credits are run through the, you know, uh, the grindhouse. The, 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 grain, the grain machine. The grain machine with like the fake, you know, burn-ins <laughs> yeah. and stuff. Yeah. Um, the score will But vary. then it kind of goes away after a while. It does. but they, then like they, the, they give you a flavor of it. They give you the taste of it in the first few but minutes. Even as the film, they, but as the film away. proceeds, like, there will be moments where like, one person is walking across a snowy campus and the score is just one flute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, it, it, no, it was shot digitally, but it was throughout yeah. made to look like 
of the 70s film stock. Yeah, I've been reading a lot not about... With the, not with the wear and tear that you see in the first few... Right, yeah, that's, that, that, they, don't, they don't hang on to that one. But yeah. but generally speaking, this does look yeah. like a film of 1970 and not a digital creation of the past few years. Yeah. Um, there are several films... Like, apparently Maestro does the same thing where, you know, they, they really rain up the 60s, 70s part to look like films of that era, even though the whole thing was shot digitally. There's a lovely uh, Damien Arado new song on the soundtrack that uh, that was not shortlisted by, <laughs> by the Academy for uh, the best song category. Yeah. I do want to ask that yeah. Yeah. movies stop, stop using, using the Cat wind Stevens. for a while. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna let this go this time because it was. It is. It is. It, it was a song that was then happening right then. Sure, but like, are you? It there has, has to been be Margaret super was overused. also used. Was also set in nineteen seventy and also uses that song. Yeah. Actually, I oh, think. Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. Is so blatantly cheating all the time with its song <laughs> cues from the trailer. Well, the trailer doesn't count. Oh, the trailer absolutely does count, and here's why, because they are teasing you with this wonderful arrangement of George Harrison's What is Life uh, in the in the trailer for Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret. And it I remember seeing that trailer for the first time and going, oh, oh. Because you can't, that song is undeniable. It too has been overused sure. in film. But it is such a jubilant song. It can make you excited to see right, a movie. But, but the filmmakers don't cut the trailer. The, the marketing they department does. But... The production. Or Bill Neal does. The produ- <laughs> hey, Bill Neal. No, I, don't, I bet he does. I bet he doesn't have a say in that kind of thing. He's just cutting them. But like, it's <laughs> that's so funny. <laughs> um, y'all, the, if you haven't listened to this show, show for a very long time, you don't even know what we're talking about. Um, no, you're right. You're right. But also, by the way, uh, also I'll give it a pass. In both films, yeah, it's an anachronism. That song was first featured on his 1971 album, oh. Teaser and the Firecat, right. and, and further well, popularized right. in Harold and Maude. One year off is not that big of an all anachronism. Right. I don't think. I think it's fine. <laughs> anyway, see the holdovers. It's quite lovely. And uh, Dave Joy Randolph has a lock on at least a nomination at the Academy Awards this well, year. Because from your she, mouth to the Academy's ear. She pretty much... Uh, swept the uh, the critics groups I think let's you know I think it would be cool yeah. if that were the case I also am she hoping... also pops up for two seconds in uh, Rustin as Mahalia Jackson yeah and as much as I care about the Academy Awards I guess I'm also hoping that uh, Danielle Brooks gets a best supporting mm, nomination yeah. for the color purple as well so we will now segue into mm-hmm. talking about the color purple have we not talked about that yet? We have not. Oh, we, we talked about it a little bit with Lewis, okay. but we did not dig in. Dig in. Um, uh, the new 2023 uh, musical version based on the Broadway stage musical version of The Color Purple. Which, like the 1985 screen version, was inspired by, by the novel by Alice, Alice Walker. Walker's novel. Um, so the, the novel is 41 years old yeah. now. It came out in 1982. 43. 
sorry, for, blah, 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 42, 42 years old. 42, you're right, 42 years old. Um, 85 was the Steven Spielberg film starring mm-hmm. Whoopi Goldberg. And then this uh, musical uh, was on Broadway in the early 2000s. Yes. Uh, it closed and then it got revived again with Fantasia yes. in the lead. Fantasia Barino, the winner of the third season of American Idol. Yes. That sounds right. Yeah. Um, and it has become her show. Yeah. It has become a signature thing for her. Uh, and it was, a, it was, it was a, I, I remember when they announced the, the film version, I thought, if it's not Fantasia, <laughs> number one, I will riot. I shall run amok. Number two. You will limp amok. I will, yeah. Uh, also, you won't have as good a film yeah. without her. I think that she brings such a depth of feeling to the character of Siegley, and I have seen her do this on stage here mm-hmm. in Los Angeles when the tour, the touring company came and she was starring in it. Um, and her her vocal power is is undeniable. I we've dis, we've discussed this so many times over the years. She is the greatest American Idol winner that has ever existed. And I love Kelly Clarkson. And as I said to Lewis when he was here. If there's a day that I'm not listening to Kelly, if there's a day that I am listening to Kelly Clarkson sing, I will say, I can't pick between the two of them. But if there's a day I'm not listening to Kelly Clarkson sing, I will tell you, Fantasia uh, is the is the American Idol. <laughs> I don't even care what her chart career has been like since. I've seen her perform live once at the Sherman Oaks Fashion Center in the Macy's Juniors <laughs> Department. That's right. I follow her wherever she goes. She, she performed at L.A. Pride uh, in the late 2000s, early, uh, just around the same time she was beginning The Color Purple. Uh, and then I saw her in the show. Uh, and... She never fails to move me. I think her voice is so special. Um, and no less than Aretha Franklin said so as well. Yeah. Like Aretha Franklin recorded a duet with her uh, in her later you know, career. Um, and that's, you know, I don't need anyone else to tell me anything different. <laughs> I will not hear. I will not hear any debate about this. This isn't. This isn't a discussion that we're all going to have about whether I'm right or not about Fantasia being amazing. She is, uh, and I think she's great in this film too. She is. This is a. It was directed by Blitz uh, Bazawule, Bazawule, who did a film called The Burial of Kojo mm-hmm. that you can watch on Netflix. It yep. was Ava uh, uh, DuVernay's Array releasing picked up. Mm-hmm. So this uh, this adaptation also stars uh, Taraji P Henson as Shug, uh, Daniel Brooks as Sophia Coleman Domingo is Mister, uh, Corey Hawkins is uh, oh wait what's the son's Harpo Harpo is the son's name, uh, her Halle Bailey Louis Gossett Jr. Mm-hmm. 
Sierra as grown-up Nettie, <laughs> which was very exciting to me. Uh, Felicia Pearl Mapasi, who I'd never heard of before, but mm-hmm. she plays a young and she's great she is and great she looks enough like fantasia that it's a seamless sort of passing uh-huh. of the baton as yeah. that character ages yeah um i love this film yeah and i and i know that there are some sort of like structural maybe problems here uh but i love the places that this adaptation has gone yeah um I love the 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 inclusion of a more uh, uh, a more romantic relationship between Celia and Shook. If there's a, if there's one big flaw in the Spielberg version, it's that absence. The kiss scene in the I've I've recently looked at the kiss scene uh-huh. from the Seal, the Spielberg version, and it lasts longer than the kiss here because they do something different with the kiss here. Right. Um, they set it in a fantasy scenario uh, at first, Yeah. moving into real life. Uh, so much of what happens in the film is Seeley's imagination on screen. Her, the, a lot of, some of the musical numbers are Seeley's imagination, including uh, uh, one that's just really sort of like a throwback to early musicals. Yeah. Uh, of the 30s including and this is these are these are visual reference points that i do not know but now i have to go do my homework including films like stormy weather mm. uh and other black musical films of that era yeah it's it's the sort of like you know it's it's, it's the big band in white tuxedos uh-huh. it's the reflective yeah. ballroom floor the yeah. big staircase that kind of thing yeah so the kiss in the original film takes longer and is very tender and because it's 1985 the camera discreetly well hang on before it discreetly moves to the tinkling wind chimes yes it is prepping the audience for something that frankly just wasn't happening in mainstream films in 1985 sure we forget no no the history of queer cinema is one where we are Erased. Uh, we are erased, and if we are given any, you know, good thing, it it is filtered through the expectations of heterosexual audiences who needed this moment of, oh, oh, is something about to happen? Oh no, are they? Ooh, there's what? a hand on the shoulder and the a kiss on the forehead and a kiss on the cheek, and then a longer lingering kiss on the lips. Um, you also get to see. In 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 uh, 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 Whoopi Goldberg, a kind of awakening during that kiss scene, of where she's shy and she's embarrassed and she doesn't know what to do and she's afraid, but then she smiles, yeah, and she sort of decides, okay, I will, you know, uh, and in this film, Fantasia, her Celie is Celie is imagining. A a, a, a a big romance with Shook. She's kind of in her head already there. And there's a kiss in the fantasy sequence, and then there's a kiss in the movie theater where they're watching the film. Right. And then they wake up in bed together, which the film, which the 1985 film did not give you. Also, I think this Seeley, 
we were given a much clearer indication of like this is a woman who has had her first orgasm. And I think that's an important mm-hmm. leap for this character who's been so abused for so long yeah. that she actually discovers pleasure for the first time. Right. And I think Spielberg, again, is a little more coy about that. And I, you know, it was, it was 1985. No, I get it. it was, I get it. I get it. Let's not pretend that the world was great back sure. then. It was not. Um, there was... Uh, there was just, I mean, as and as the, the the eighty-five film goes on, they really pull back from the idea that Seeley and Shug are a couple. Right. Um, I think for anyone who is uh, uh, surprised by either of these films, uh, that that means you have not read, read this the novel, <laughs> yeah. which is sexually explicit. Yes. After they become, you know, after they get together. Yeah. There are again some structural things that are that are unusual here, uh, where they pull back on Shug's eventual kind of betrayal of Seely. Right. Uh, in the in the stage production, this leads to Seely singing "I'm Here," a song that begins with the lyrics "I don't need you to love me. I'll do I'll do that for myself." Basically. Right. Um, they cut out the I don't need you to love me lyric from this film version of the song I'm here. Uh, but the, the all the performances are great. Daniel Brooks is an astonishing oh, Sophia. Wow, yeah. Um, we should mention her as Squeak, by the way. Uh, her as Squeak. Uh, you know, if I got a complaint, I didn't get enough Sierra. Because <laughs> I love Sierra. Um I think that the 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 reconciliation moments that mm-hmm. take place in the novel and uh, this film are more pronounced here than they are in the Spielberg film. Well, this movie also, I think, spends more time on Seeley's curse of Mister. Yeah, like we don't really see Mister suffer in her absence, right? Uh, the way that we do here. Like yeah. in that movie, like he gets drunk once or something and then kind of like makes restitution. Right. Here we see him go through it after Celie has shown her ability to to put a curse on him, which he mocked because, you know, who is she and what power does she have? And it's have? not even a supernatural curse. No. It is simply a, I know you and I've been holding you up this whole time. Right. My absence and will make you fail. My absence will make you fail. Yeah, it's not. It's not like you know, I have no, right, uh, yes. uh, supernatural powers. No, no, no. It is. It is a statement of, all right, you know, go ahead. See how this goes see without how, me. See how this goes without me. Um, that you've been you've been treating me like dirt, worse than dirt. Every sort of abuse you have given to me, and now I will remove myself from it. Um. I love Fantasia's performance as Seeley, and it, it and, and the film dares to make it really subtle and slow as a sort of unfolding of a person. I think it was it would have been much easier for her to be very forthright a lot earlier than she is in this in this version. Um, it would have been easier for the audience to 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 hook onto something, mm-hmm. but she's so muted and so tamped down through most of the film that you really have to wait for it. You really have to wait to watch her 
become this self-possessed person. Yeah. Uh, and when she does, it's by singing. And that is where Fantasia Barino will pin you to the back of the movie theater. <laughs> as she did me. I cannot hear her sing the song, I'm Here Without Crying. And I've heard her sing that song many times. And it chokes me up every time. Because she's digging down as a performance. As a performer, I think she's digging down deep into her own life. Because she's had a time of it. Yeah. In real life. And it's been tough. Becoming famous at 19 was hard. Um, and before that, her life was difficult. Yeah. And so, like, she has spent a lot of years, like, getting herself to a place where she's doing well. Yeah. Um, and I'm, you know, uh, uh, so happy to watch her just f- come alive in this movie. For all the conversations that have been, been had in the past six months about Rodrigo Prieto making Barbie and Killers of the Flower Moon in one year, yeah. deservedly so, as cinematographer, yeah, uh, I feel the same level of awe toward Coleman Domingo, yeah, being Bayard yeah, Rustin yeah. and Mister back yeah. to back because those are two completely distinct performances, but he so dominates the camera lens yeah. in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a way that you want to support him and in a way that you just despise him. Yeah. Um, he is just, he's so magnetic in that way. I've heard that, that this film is, is not doing as well at the box office as it was initially. And I've also heard that it's getting sort of like audience, bad audience word of mouth. And I don't understand that. I and know. I don't know what, it, what, what that bad uh, word of mouth is about. Uh, if it, if it if it has to do with homophobia or what it has to do with, I I, I don't quite know. Um, I think I mean look, I, I think sadly part of this and and obviously how Mean Girls does is going to play a big role in this. But this you know West Side Story Spielberg's remake of West Side Story yeah. did not do well. Yeah. And um and and there is this concern that musicals that are pitched at an older audience that older audience is going to wait and watch them at home. Maybe. So, you know, yeah, I think there was an initial boost, like, you know, apparently Warner Brothers was really getting, like, a lot of church groups out to right. see it on opening day and right. generate word of mouth. Um, and, you know, as as some box office analyst was saying, we still have MLK weekend, we still have Oscar nominations, which right. could certainly raise this film's fortunes. But yeah, if it, if people aren't going to see it, that makes me sad because it, it really is, a, a it was on my top 20. I think mm-hmm. it's a really great film and, and having seen it on stage, I think it is its own thing. Um, and it's just beautifully put together and, and the performances are great. And, and I'm somebody who loves, loves, loves the Spielberg version. Like yeah. for all of its flaws, yeah. um, you know, that's a movie that just, just is, a, is a gut punch. And I was, you know, a little skeptical about seeing somebody else tackle it. And I think that all concerned here have created something yeah. really special. Originally, I decided, originally I thought we were going to talk about Menu's Plaisirs uh, in this episode. Uh-huh. But we've gone kind of long yeah. on these first two movies and I want to get to the other two. Um, and and ironically, the film about the restaurant has to be uh, 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 put on hold for next week so that I can make dinner. <laughs> <laughs> you got your own menu, please. If I do. don't make dinner starting in about 15 minutes, <laughs> I will be so hungry by the time it happens. 
that I will become a very bad, a very right. bad person. Well, next week uh, we will talk about Frederick Wise. I have already done menu plaisir les trois gros. I've already done my mise en place. <laughs> I have already chopped up all my vegetables. I've already torn up all the chicken. I've already mixed up the flour. It's chicken and dumplings night. Yeah, in this home, in this house, we Je- chicken and dumplings. Jealous. <laughs> Uh, it's sitting. I'm looking at it. It's sitting there, waiting for me to get in there and yes. and pop it together. All right. Uh, so what what are we talking about then? Night swim. <laughs> <laughs> Spooky pool. <laughs> I'm just gonna call it Spooky Pool Spooky from pool. now on. Why not? Ghost sure. wife. Candy bones. Spooky, Spooky pool. pool. <laughs> uh, Spooky pool is based on a short film. Yes. That was called Night Swim for some reason. Who knows why? Bryce McGuire and Rod Blackhurst. So Bryce McGuire uh, directed this and wrote the screenplay. The original uh, short film was by Rod Blackhurst and Bryce McGuire. This is a Blumhouse movie. It is a supernatural horror film about a haunted backyard swimming pool. Yeah. And, And it stars... Real actors. It stars yeah. Wyatt Russell, and uh, Academy Award nominee the, Carrie Condon. And Academy Award <laughs> nominee Carrie Condon. If you don't recognize her name, she was in the Banshees of Inisherin. She is a respected Irish actress, yes. and she's uh, an American uh, character here, um, married to Wyatt Russell, uh, who is the. I there are children of celebrities. Who, are. A surprise when you find out that who their parents are. <laughs> but not in this case. Not ever. Wyatt Russell and not Dakota Johnson. Like when no. you look at Dakota Johnson, you go, I bet you're the child of Melanie Griffith and Don Johnson. And when you look at Wyatt Russell, you think, oh yeah, your father is Kurt Russell and your mom is Goldie Hawn. Like he, I think even more so than Dakota Johnson, he is like, like if they took the exact genes of these two people and yeah. put them together in a lab and said, "Let's make a really tall blonde version of, of both of you." Yes, let's let's put all of your best attributes into <laughs> one dude. <laughs> Every time I see him, I'm like, "Are you actually a human being of your own, <laughs> or were you created by an app?" <laughs> yeah, it's um. Do you know this is completely unrelated to the film? Do you know he used to be a like a pro hockey player? I did. Yeah. Uh, he was. He played uh, like whatever the what do they call not pro hockey leagues? like like the like the triple A or whatever. Yeah. The, you and know. he did that and he played pro for a while, but then he got injured. Uh, mm. He had to quit doing it. As, uh, I don't know how you know well known in that world he was. I don't know how good he was. I mean, you're in the you did you played pro for a while. You're good enough, sure, right? Yeah. Um, made it to the show. And um, Wyatt Russell, are you ready? <laughs> good because you're good because you're going the um the the so yeah he got injured and decided well i guess i can just go back to the family business <laughs> being hanging out in a richard linklater movie exactly which well, is the he, first time i noticed him I yes think. and then he did that yeah. lodge 49 show that, that show, we started yeah. watching and didn't yeah. finish but um yeah i think he's really charming i find he's real i find him very appealing yeah. i think Kara condon is Oh, she's Great. amazing. And of course, um, you know, and this movie is flawless American accent. This movie is this this movie is the slumming visit of both of them. Oh yeah. They 
He's like, oh, Blumhouse wants to pay me how much? Sure. To be in a movie about a a, a haunted swimming pool? (laughs) About making a Faustian bargain with a pool? (laughs) I'm in. Um, So his character uh, is a former Major League Baseball player. Yes. Wyatt Russell's character. Uh, But he now has, he has been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. So he does, uh, you know, physical therapy and he, uh, other, you know, medicines and whatnot. And the doctor's like, well, you know, being in the water is going to be really helpful for you. So they buy this house and it's got a backyard pool. And Wyatt Russell's like, great. Little do they know. Yes. We, the audience, know because the, the, the movie it, opens. It opens with a 1992 uh, drowning. But it's not just any kind of drowning. It's a drowning where a spooky the drowning. pool has claimed the life of this child. Yeah. And there are external reasons that we don't understand initially, but we learn about later. Like there's someone in the house that's ill, but maybe they're going to become better if the pool gets a sacrifice or well, that's, something yeah, like that. Yeah, that's that. we found out much later yeah. in the movie. And so... It's a spooky pool. It's got some spooky ghouls. <laughs> it's got some you, glug glug glugs. I thought like some the, real ominous glug glug glugs. Very ominous. Yeah. No, the sound design here I think is really on point. The, yeah. the first like thirty to forty five minutes where they don't ex- they haven't told you what's happening with the pool is still just, dumb, but not as dumb as after you learn what's happening. Yes. Yeah. But I will say this: they. If, if you know, I've made the I, I made the joke comparison to the five obstructions. If you had to like make a backyard swimming pool threatening and creepy and right. disturbing, right. this movie knows all the tricks for doing that. Well, it it knows all the tricks because it has seen Jaws and it has seen Amityville Horror and it has seen any number of it has seen the swimmer. <laughs> it has <laughs> it has it has seen all the other films about. Trouble in a trouble in water, trouble in suburbia, in a house we just moved into, where there's a a a, a terrifying historical secret that goes back generations. And yes, I'm spoiling this movie right now, but also I'm not because if you like stupid stuff, <laughs> I will I will tell you I had a good time. That's the thing because about twenty it, minutes in I was like. Oh, I see. This is going to happen because of this, and 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 it's going to be for this reason. Like I had it sort of sorted out yeah. already. It's it's dumb, but from it the is, time it the is... first spooky ghoul shows up, and I yeah, I, I wish they, they was not afraid of anything. I not wish scary. they hadn't felt compelled to go with the spooky ghoul route. I thought the pool itself was. They are enough. some pretty hilarious looking spooky They're, ghouls, though. Yeah, they are cousin its. They they. <laughs> They look like the cheese goblin in Mandy. <laughs> <laughs> there's also a there's a moment at the end with Carrie Condon yeah. where I do you know the I've told you about this the the, the Roger Ebert thing where he would when he if, when he was in a movie where somebody holds their breath he would also hold his breath right and then as soon as he couldn't hold his breath anymore yeah. 
he would count how long they would how keep long holding they their can, breath. Oh, yeah. She's, in, in a unit of measure that he called her Shelley's. She's a supernatural <laughs> uh, breath holder. Yeah. Uh, she, she's holding her breath longer than Tom Cruise in that movie. But she's swimming into a supernatural depth as well. Uh, yeah, I suppose. Like, it's, it's not just a pool anymore. It's like no. the other side. She's, a, and she's so crossed a portal. It is so dumb. Yeah. But, and I, I need to also say this. The, the the scares are the jump scares are not connected to anything related to the plot. Yeah, not <laughs> really. The plot is not scary. There's just a lot of Ugh, we gotcha, you know, kind of stuff. There is a It is a- so dumb. And at the same time, I was having a good time watching something this dumb. Yes. There's a fun realtor character and there's a fun pool tech character. There, there is. <laughs> there is. There <laughs> There are some other. There are some line readings <laughs> here. Wyatt where, Russell's particularly. Well, all of them are from Wyatt Russell. Yeah, um, and it's meant to convey certain aspects of his character that you are not supposed to know much about until later on in the movie. But when he does them, you're just like, "Bro, <laughs> what's? Did you not get a second take? And like, I don't blame you." <laughs> It's nuts. Um, if you're going to go see it in a theater. If I watched this on television, I would feel bored and I might turn it off halfway through. Yeah, you would you would drift. But it's it is it's the kind of stupid that you realize early on in the film and you think, "Okay, it's stupid. Let's have a good time." Yeah. Yeah. Now, the friend I went with also said it was stupid, but he did not have a good time oh. with this level of stupidity. Oh, well. So, potato, potato. Look, I've seen much worse uh, on a January horror Oh, tip. for sure. Like, yeah. uh, you know, the, the, the later um, Paranormal Activity sequels, yeah. that that exorcism movie that doesn't even really end, that like sends you to a website... <laughs> Yes. I forget what that was called, but the that po- was the oh, worst. Y'all, the Pope's Exorcist. Similarly stupid. Yeah. Uh, so this but ain't actually Megan. more 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 entertaining for its stupidity sure. just because of Russell Crowe. This is no Megan, but it's better than a lot of stuff. No, it ain't Megan. Early in the year. It ain't so. Megan. It's Spooky Pool. Yeah. Yeah. Ask for it by name. Walk right up to the <laughs> box office and say, one for Spooky Pool, please. And they'll be like, what? Like, oh, that's right. The normies are calling it Night Swim, but we all know. It's Spooky Pool. Spooky Pool. And then we saw All of Us Strangers. Yes. This is the latest from Andrew Haig. How much do we explain? I think we can talk about the setup and the parents. Yeah, Yeah, okay, sure. Uh, Andrew Scott, who was a hot priest on Fleabag. Yes, and who just won Best Actor for the National Society of Film Critics for his role here. Yep. Uh, he is a middle-aged uh, gay man, but it was mid-40s. Yeah. Living uh, alone in a strangely empty apartment building in High London. High-rise. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there, seemed to, there seemed to be no neighbors. Um. One night, he notices uh, another man in the uh, on the property. The man sees him, and that man is played by Paul Mescal from uh, After Sun. Uh, After Sun. 
and Paul Mescal's character is a guy in his mid-twenties. They have a very uh, funny conversation about the words gay and queer <laughs> and what they mean to you depending on what generation you're from. Right. Um, and the Paul Mescal character is drunk. He's got a bottle of whiskey in his hand and he wants to share the whiskey, but he's, he's not just drunk, he's drunk. Yeah. Like, he's blackout drunk. Andrew Scott uh, very uh, wisely says, you should go back to your apartment. It, you, you can't be here. Yeah. Whatever you want to do with me, it should happen. If it's going to happen, it should happen later when you're sober. Yeah, yeah. sleep it off. So what we learn about uh, Andrew Scott is that he's a screenwriter and he is uh, sort of blocked for something to write about. And he begins imagining uh, what it would be like to go to his childhood home. So he goes to his childhood home. And when he gets there, he meets his deceased parents, played by... Uh, Claire Foy and... Uh... Uh, Jamie Bell. Jamie Bell. Who died in a car accident when the Andrew Scott character was like 12 years old. 12, in the 1987. Yeah, yeah. This is very specific about years and stuff yes. here. So what we're watching now is a period film in many ways that is also a ghost story. Because he knows his parents are dead. But they are communicating to him. They're talking to him. They're flesh and blood, plain as day, right in front of him. And he's having all the conversations with them that he might have possibly had had they lived, had he to grown up. To see him become an adult. To see him become an adult. He comes out to them, and their their reactions are, uh, you know, their reactions are what he's hoping they would be. He is being given a sort of resolution over the course of the film to many things that he wishes he had understood or been able to experience uh, if his parents had not been killed. Right. Meanwhile, he is developing a romance with the Paul Mescal character. And it is exactly the kind of, you know, I'm using this expression ironically, rep- reparative therapy. <laughs> that, that you hope that adult love and, and romance will bring to you. Right. If you've grown up queer in an earlier generation and connecting with other queer people on a, on a relationship level is tough for you because you have carried all of this stuff with you through your life, shame and you know self-hatred and loneliness and isolation, all the things they told you you were going to be, all the things that straight people burdened you with right. when you were a kid in the 60s, 70s, 80s. If you, if you, if they clocked you as queer, the, they would, the sad life you were going they to They would say to you things like, well, it's a sad, lonely life. You know, if they weren't trying to kill you, if they weren't trying to physically abuse you or make you pray the gay away and turn straight, they would warn you that your life was going to be awful. Yeah. I came out to my family. At age 27, I was wow. in 1993. And no, 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 I was 28 in 1993. I came out to my family and I got every line down the line for every <laughs> single person. Oh no, are you going to die of AIDS? Oh, oh no. Oh, that was a popular one. <laughs> oh no. Are you going to be sad and lonely? Oh no. Are you already sad and lonely? Are you already <laughs> dying of AIDS? Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I came out in was, 1988 and uh, the and to a family of doctors. So this the was, thing was a moment in Texas where they were actually debating whether or not it was okay to have gay cops on the Dallas police force. And this. it made the news every night. Um, this was the era of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. This was, a, this was the era where there were not yet any kind of drugs to treat people with HIV. Right. It was a horrible, horrible time to be queer and to come out. And yes. that's when I did it. And, but at the same time- We didn't have any TV shows. It felt, <laughs> we did not. It felt like, in weird ways, it felt like a more hopeful moment. It felt like things might start opening up. There was so much queer rage. Mm. Queer Nation was around, ACT UP was around, and it was a venue for you to sort of take control of the narrative for yourself and to tell people, you know what? Shut up. <laughs> I don't I don't want your tolerance. I want I don't want your tolerance. I don't want your pity. I don't want your anything. Yeah. I'm you, gonna tell you how it is. You can you can love me and you can support me on this journey, but uh, if you can't do those things, yeah. then I don't wanna I, I don't a, have time for this. I had, a, I had a Christian friend ask me if I had considered ex-gay organizations. Ugh. And I said, the burden of change is not on me, it's on you. <laughs> I literally said that. That's a quote <laughs> that I said to this friend. And, and they said, oh. And they didn't talk to me for a while, and, but later they did. Mm. And I've, very, I've had very few personal triumphs. <laughs> <laughs> in my life that I can look back on and go, you know what? You really had the right words at the right time for that person. And it worked. So going back to the film. Yes. This film is kind of set in that era. When he goes back to talk to his parents, it's that stuff. And when he's in interacting with Paul Mescal, it's predicated on having experienced all of that stuff. Right. Okay. I, it, I was just talking to our friend Amy Nicholson about a song choice in... The Iron Claw, which uh -huh. you haven't seen yet. And she talked about, she goes, you know, I love that song, but I realized later there's no way that those people would be listening to it at that particular time right. and place. Right. And we complain all the time about song, you know, like, oh, frat boys listening stuff. to New right. or whatever. Right. This yeah. movie nails what a gay 12-year-old would be listening to uh -huh. in 1987. And uses, that, uses those needle drops to... Sort of devastating emotional yes. effects quite frequently. Yes. Um, all right. Verdict. I love this movie. It it kicked me in the gut. It is the most expressive, I think, of any Andrew Haig film to date. Wow. Um, because if I'm going to complain about anything, the, oh, quite often I feel like, you know, sometimes his characters can be a little removed from themselves and that that's a choice right it is infrequent that we get serious you know uh dramatic films about queer people that are this much heart on their sleeve um there is a definite connection i think here to bros yeah Obviously, Bros is a big, broad rom romantic comedy with, you know, emphasis on jokes. Except for that little 10-minute bit in the middle. On the beach where, in Provincetown. On the beach in Provincetown where Billy Eichner and Luke McFarlane are 
laying bare their childhood traumas with each other. Yeah. And the movie, the comedy comes to a stop. Like, it is a moment in Bros where you really understand what the entire film is about. Yeah. These two characters are screwed up. They've got everything they need. Right. Right? They've got good jobs. They're... They're 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 good looking. They're white. They're men. <laughs> they're cisgender men. They're financially secure. They're financially secure. They live in Manhattan. Everything could not be better for them, right. and they're carrying this stuff with them, and it and it prevents them from loving each other uh, uh, yeah. until the very end when they love each other because it's I, a rom com and that's how rom coms. Of course, are. but like, and I think there's something unique about our generation in that kind of thing because unique. queer people. Well, because queer people younger than us grew up in a different world where protease inhibitors existed, where pop culture things were happening, where legal things were happening. And the generations ahead of us, I mean, the one immediately ahead of us, mostly died. Yeah. You know, and and so, and and the ones who didn't faced the worst of all the stuff, like a worse version of all the stuff that, that our generation had to deal with. Yeah from society and culture. And so I think that puts people, us at the character, our age, the, the, that are the age of the, of the Andrew Scott character in a unique situation that doesn't relate to the lives of queer people older than them or younger than them. I, um, I want to save the spoilers for a later episode, not just because I'm trying to make me some chicken and dumplings here, yes. but, but also because I want to, I I've been talking to a lot of, very specifically, queer men yeah. who have seen this film and whose opinions are all over the map about it. Those who've seen it three, four times and who are just gut-punched by it. Mm-hmm. Those like uh, uh, Chris, Donut Chris Robles, who said it left me cold. Yes. Uh, some friends I know who were angry mm-hmm. about it after watching it. Uh, one... A young friend of ours who's 24 years old who texted me and said, why can't gay guys just be happy? <laughs> and I said, I need to have you a little, <laughs> need to have a discussion with you about this film. I'm going to, I'm going to tell you some things about like, and, but, but after we had our, our little text conversation, um, I, uh, he was like, okay, I get it. He goes, but it was still so sad. I was like, yo, no, no, no. It was sad. Yeah. <laughs> it's real sad. Um, but I have been saying that I need to see it again. Yeah. And so I would be happy to do that before we get into spoilers. It 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 does a thing that that I th- you know what I don't want to say it okay don't. because I have a theory about how gay men how queer men men who love men how they respond to films that are directly immediately about them uh-huh. you know. That there's no, there's no, there's, it's not about a woman. <laughs> yeah. They don't have a woman as an avatar. Right. Um, uh, uh, it, it's, it's a very specific story. So maybe it doesn't hit what you needed from it. You know, it's, uh, this is sort of a long standing thing I've been thinking yeah. about. Like if this movie isn't about me specifically, is it about yeah. my experience? In right. This, you know, I, yeah. It's, there's a lot going on here and I've been fascinated by, the the wild again divergence of opinion. I have to say, I about this. Movie. I I there are I think there are scenes in this movie that are among like the most powerful ones I experienced in the yeah. last year. The movie as a whole didn't completely deliver for right. me, but I want to watch it again 
to see if maybe I just missed something or if. Do you if, think the reveal, the reveals that happen, had anything to do with that? A little, you? in that yeah. I didn't quite understand how they all tied together. Oh, but I, see, I got that right away. No, okay. okay. Well, I'll, I'll, I, but I, I do want to look at it again. Let's do letters real quick, and then we can skip out. All right, let me find them. And while you're finding letters, I will remind everyone that we have a Patreon at patreoncom knife where we do lots of extra stuff. We do Linoleum Knife presents more Linoleum Knife, where we'll take twenty or thirty minutes and dig into one individual film. Yeah. Uh, LKTV, a podcast yeah. of the television. Linoleum Knife and Fork, a food podcast hosted by two film critics. Yeah. Uh, Linoleum. You Knights. can even go listen to a freebie episode of that yes. recently, where we talked to Nancy the, Silverton, the Nancy the Silverton. Nancy Silverton about her new cookbook yeah um you know uh we have uh, club meetings where we watch movies together and, and and hang out in discord so lots of stuff i think if you like the show you might like more of this show so uh patreon.com slash linoleum knife think about it won't you dr steve says candy cane lane proves once again that it is required by law for the song This Christmas to be played at some point in every black Christmas movie. And he provides a time mark. <laughs> Four minutes and 43 seconds. Uh, I have not yet watched Candy Cane Lane. Is it the Donny Hathaway version? I believe or is it, it is. a cover? I believe it is. Okay. As opposed to the movie This Christmas where it's sung by Chris Brown. Right. Right. Uh, Robert Kirby. Regarding the Lewis uh, episode, wonderful episode, Le- yay, Lewis Vertel, the conversation about May-December captured so much of what I wanted from a conversation about May-December. <laughs> <laughs> Todd Haynes has still got it. Uh, a reminder, everybody, if you have not picked up Robert Kirby's book, uh, Marry Me a Little, it's a beautiful uh, graphic memoir about his relationship and wedding to his husband, uh, and very lovely. And it's been popping up on a lot of best of the year lists, deservedly so. Uh, Oluwateo Adewole says, important ridiculous detail about Miss Emerald <laughs> is that according to a poorly sourced Daily Mail piece, <laughs> I'm, I'm loving this already. You got me already, yes. <laughs> She's actually named after a 1930s society hostess, Lady Maud Emerald uh, Cunard, I don't necessarily buy it, but it's such a British upper-class naming story, LOL. <laughs> There's a link. Cunard, like the the, the line of ocean I, vessels? Maybe. <laughs> maybe. Um, so I love that. Thank you. <laughs> Juicy. Thank you. Uh, that is our time, because we have chicken and dumplings. I got I to gotta, I gotta make food, y'all. Waiting to go. Gotta, so gotta uh, go. thanks, everybody, for listening. Um, quick reminder, you can catch me on several other podcasts. <laughs> Breakfast All Day with Chrissy Lemire on YouTube or uh, on your favorite podcatcher. You can cash me outside. (laughs) Stop. Sorry, that was stupid. Keep keeping it timely. Um, uh, Maximum Film on the Maximum Fun Network and uh, Weekly on Deck the Hallmark as well. And hey, you guys, 2024 is here. I'm very excited about my new book, Hollywood Pride, coming out uh, May 14th. I'm not going to bring it up every week, but I just want to throw it out there now. Currently available... Available for pre-order and all the places where you can buy books. Well, we've already beat my hip surgery to death. We might as well beat your book to death, That's right. right. It's our new yeah. thing we won't shut up about. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, subscribe to this show for free at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a five-star review there. We will read it on the show. You can also leave us positive feedback in the many places that we stream, including uh, Spotify and uh, YouTube Music and uh, Amazon Music and iHeartRadio and uh, Podcasts. Pa- 
Podbean and Castbox, <laughs> and I can never remember. Get it together. A bunch of places yeah. where you can stream the show. Thank you, Blue, for our wonderful theme music. See what he's up to at Blue, B-L-E-U dot Bandcamp dot com. Follow us at Linoleum Cast on Blue Sky, Instagram, and Facebook. And drop us a line at linoleumpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns. Um, we will be back soon with more, but until then. Goodbye. <laughs>